Welcome again to In Town Church. We're glad that you're here worshiping with us this morning. My name's Steve. I'm the pastoral assistant here. If I haven't met you, I would love to do so. Um, you're catching us at the tail end of our sermon series called The Liberty of Obedience. We've been looking at the Ten Commandments, and this morning we're looking at the Tenth, which is about coveting, which is really great because I had to drive several hours yesterday to visit some family, and uh, my car doesn't have air conditioning, and it was the hottest day of the summer, right? So I had to roll the windows down so that the sweat would actually drain out of the car so I didn't drown, and, and it seemed like every car that drove by, I was coveting. I was even coveting minivans. I mean, it was, it was getting ridiculous. So it was, a, it was a great object lesson for me yesterday, but I, I do hope that uh, you can stay cool in here and that the heat is not too distracting. Um, as we've been going through this series, I hope that it's become clear to all of us that when we look at these commands, we're, we're realizing that they are situated scripturally, historically, and culturally just very, very far from where we live. And yet, they have so much to say to us about who we are and how we live our lives, that it's been hopefully uh, encouraging as well as um, maybe a little bit difficult even. And, and really what we have hoped throughout this series is that all of us would once again see Jesus, that we would actually grab a hold of the life that he offers to us, and not just the life that he offers to us, but the life that he now calls us to live in his spirit. That's what we're going to be doing again this morning. We're going to be seeing that all of these commandments aren't just prohibiting us from doing certain things. They're actually calling us to give life as Christ has given life to us. So let me read our passage for us and pray, and then we'll get started. This is the Old Testament reading. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, we return to you this morning. And we are being reminded by your Spirit as we sing, as we pray to you, that we have been given you And in that, we have been given all things. I ask that your spirit would enlighten our hearts and our minds to see you and your beauty as it is. That we would be set free from our need to have things on this earth, our need for anything other than you. Would we see you this morning as beautiful? We pray this in your name. Amen. There's an ancient story, I think it's one of Aesop's fables, and it's a story of one of the gods coming to these two men who were neighbors. And these men were consumed with greed and envy and covetousness. And so this, this you know, whichever god, I think it might have been Jupiter or something, he, he comes to these two men and he says, I will give you whatever you want. You, you get one wish and it can be anything. And here's the catch. Whatever I give you, your neighbor gets double. Okay, so the first guy's like, room full of gold, that's easy, I want a room full of gold. I want the walls to be gold, I want there to be gold in it, I don't even want to be able to open the door, I want so much gold. And voila, 
Jupiter gives him a room full of gold. And at first, he's so excited. He's got this room full of gold and wealth. And then he hears his neighbor cackling with laughter because he has two rooms full of gold. And so neighbor number one is immediately dissatisfied. He can't even enjoy his wealth. So the second man, who now realizes that, that Jupiter, or whoever it was, wasn't joking, that the other guy gets double, He's so filled with envy and covetousness. Guess what he asks for? He wants to be blinded in one eye. So far, we have had to do some digging through some of these commands to see how they don't just affect the exterior of our lives. They actually point very directly at our hearts. And this morning, we're dealing with a command that is not even hard to figure out. It it is situated firmly in our interior life. So here's a little teaser about what we're going to see this morning. We, we are going to be unable to escape a rather condemning critique of our passions and our desires and our internal life. And when we look at this command Christianly, we're going to see that it's not just calling us to stop wanting other people's things. It's calling us to give away ourselves, to give life to other people. So as we look at this command this morning, I'd like to look at it in three ways. First, we're going to look at covetousness and her cousins. And then we're going to try and understand how that relates to consumption and community. And then we'll end by coming back to Christ. And if you can say those points ten times fast, I'll buy you lunch. All right. Covetousness and her cousins. As I've already alluded to in the story of the two men, covetousness is wrapped up with envy and greed and jealousy in a way that it kind of becomes really difficult to parse them out and figure out how they're different. It's hard to know where one ends and the other one begins. But before we muddy the waters too much, let's just get a a simple working definition. Coveting is to want something that belongs to someone else. You want something that belongs to someone else. So it's different than just desiring. It's different than just wanting things because it's something that belongs to your neighbor. And so we're going to drill down a little bit more on all this in a minute, but I want us to, to think clearly about the difference between desire and sinful desire. And, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Um, how, do we, how do we understand that th- these commands are not calling us to like quell all of the desires that we have, and yet how do we allow them to critique desires that have maybe run rampant? So an example would be, Lindsay and I live in a, in a fairly small one-bedroom apartment, and every once in a while we, we talk to each other and we say, man, wouldn't it be great to have a big house. You know, we could, we could have people over. We could do whatever. And that's probably not a bad desire, right? I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting that. But if we were to go to someone else's house, and then we come home, and, and we're just completely angry and depressed with our apartment and very ungrateful for our living situation, we've somehow stumbled over a line, right? And that's, that's what we, we need to think about this morning. So as we think about envy and, and coveting and jealousy, and lust and greed, these things become very difficult to kind of cut through and figure out when are we sinning and when are we not. When, when does appreciating the physical beauty of another person spill over into lust? When does it admiring or enjoying a friend's new car spill over into covetousness? And in an affluent culture like ours, these are actually really, really difficult questions because most of us are not running around hunting food and building shelter every day, and that's it. Most of us are are having to think through decisions about our desires all the time. Not just, are we going to eat, but what kind of food do we want to eat right now? Not, 
just shelter, but what kind of shelter? Do we want a nicer neighborhood or a bigger house? Do we want a better vacation or maybe a better job? All of these questions are going are gonna to factor into our understanding of covetousness and desire. And when we actually try to press down and see, are we spilling over into sin here? Have I started being totally consumed with greed or covetousness? We end up slipping out from under ourselves. I mean, have you ever tried to just really sit and think with your decisions? I don't know about you, but I can justify most things that I decide to do. And it's really difficult to, to figure out a line that's going to work for everybody because we're on a spectrum, right? And so making a decision for one person could be covetousness, and for another person, it might not be. This became very clear to me this week as I was talking about this text with a friend of mine, and he blurted out, no Christian should ever buy a new BMW, ever. And I said, you know, I don't know if that's it. And he immediately retracted it. And we, we talked about it more, and we decided there's really no way to say, like, you can't ever do this for everybody. It's, it's a spectrum. It's not just uh, right and wrong, black and white all the time. It's, it's a lot like what uh, one of the Supreme Court justices said regarding pornography in American life. I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. You get that? I can't define where you cross the line from desire to covetousness, but we all know it when we see it. So, unfortunately, I can't tell you how often you can upgrade to a newer car. I can't give you a list of how many new Apple products you can buy each year. I can't tell you when when admiring something of your neighbors actually turns into covetousness. But what I can tell you is that if you're anything like me, we rarely ever inspect our desires to even ask the question if we've stumbled over that line. And then when we do get up the gumption to actually ask ourselves if we've, if we've gone too far. We start to obsess over the line. We want to know, when have I crossed it? How can I you know, stay back from it and stay safe? And so there's usually two camps here. One of them is, is kind of described by what my mom always taught me growing up, err on the side of caution. So we want to hem the line way back in to make sure that we don't cross over it. And then there are others of us that are more prone to kind of freedom and pushing the boundaries and seeing how far we can take things. And honestly, I think both of those camps are sort of like Indiana Jones. You remember when he's, he's searching for the, the historical artifact and he comes into the cave and he knows that it's rigged? So he pulls out his map and he's looking at the lines, right? And he wants to know where can he step and where can he not? Some of us are like that. We're really cautious. Others of us are like after he grabs the thing and the poison darts are flying and you're just running like a linebacker and you stop really caring where the line is. But here, I think, is, is the crux of, of the matter. We tend to think that these sorts of discussions, these sorts of concepts like covetousness or greed, can be done sort of like we're in a voting booth, right? So I'm up here, and I'm, and I'm talking to you, but you as an individual are kind of thinking about, how does this affect me? How do, how do I deal with this in my own life? And what we have to realize is that we can't talk about these things in a vacuum. We have to understand them in the context of relationship, both relationship with God and relationships with one another. And so this is where I'd like us to just think for a little bit about consumption and community. And I am, I am very, very aware that community has become a buzzword in the last decade or so. And as with all buzzwords, it, it basically begins to lose meaning, right? It, it we say it so much. People talk about authentic community. And if you were to poll 100 people what that means, you would get 100 different answers. 
And I don't think we really even have thought very well about it, despite the fact that we've talked about it for so long. However, there's a reason that it became a buzzword in the first place, and that's because it's very, very important. And we see that um, in this command itself, but also the way that Jesus described the law. He said, the law hangs on two things, love for God and love for neighbor. So the law is, is a community document. We can't understand it apart from relationships with other people. And the thing about community is it's such an assumed constant in human life. It's a lot like breathing. I don't normally have conversations with people about breathing unless they ask me to go running with them, at which point I say, I can't do that because I like to breathe well, right? So community is a lot like that. We, it's so pervasive in the way that it actually has to do with every part of our life that when we try to talk about it, it becomes sort of awkward and weird. Like, why are we even discussing it? And often, similar to breathing, until it's not working right, we take it for granted. We, we view it as almost unimportant. But what this command makes explicitly clear to all of us is that you can't covet in a vacuum. You have to have a neighbor who has something in order to covet. Likewise, with the other commandments, you can't bear false witness without community. You can't commit adultery without community. You can't murder without community. You can't even dishonor your parents without community. They would have to not exist in order for those commands to even make sense. And the key here is that we don't live alone, and therefore we don't make choices alone that affect us alone. So for us to set up hypotheticals or to discuss ethical choices in, in, a, in a context of, you know, the idea that, that humans are just autonomous islands is sort of a waste of time. So Simon and Garfunkel got it wrong. We're neither rocks nor islands. We're all very, very connected to other people. And nowhere is this more true than in the church. Paul reminds us that we are one body. If you're a part of the church, if, if you have said yes to Jesus, then you are part of one body that is formed by one spirit, one faith, and one baptism. And when a part of that body is sick, the whole body suffers. So here's a couple questions to, to kind of help us categorize ourselves. Are you a human being? If you are a human being, then you are a part of the human community. And the choices that you make don't just affect you because you're, you're making choices in the context of other people. Are you a part of Jesus' church? Have you said yes to him and, and had baptism and entered into the life of the church? If so, then you are even more organically and intrinsically linked to other people. To pretend otherwise isn't just detrimental. It's, it's sort of like insanity. It's like holding your hand in a fire and pretending like you don't have a hand. So what does this have to do with, with coveting or her cousins of envy and consumption and greed? Well, if you're greedy or materialistic, you're not greedy all by yourself on an island. You're greedy in the context of other people. So when desire for things or wealth or power becomes unhinged from its true home, you actually start to devalue other people. When you envy someone or you covet their things or their relationships or their abilities, what happens? You begin to murder, even if it's just being angry at their success. You begin to commit adultery, even if it's just lusting after someone who belongs to a committed relationship with someone else. You begin to steal from them, even if it's just stealing their joy. 
When you're filled with covetousness and envy, you are cutting yourself off from an ability to sorrow with those who are sorrowful and rejoice with those who rejoice. You're cheapening them as a person, and you're killing off their God-designed, God-given mandate for Christian community. You're killing that off if you're filled with greed or covetousness. In the same way, when you are so consumed with your own desires for things that the needs of other people are no longer as important as fulfilling your own pleasures, you're forced to squish other people down into something much smaller than yourself where their needs are less important than your own. And there is nothing more antithetical to the gospel than that. Jesus gave up everything for us. Everything. He not only didn't covet what little scraps we had, he gave up his life for us. In towners, we're going to have a quick family chat. And if, you're, if this is your first week here, I'm so glad that you're here. And just pretend like I'm the older brother uh, of your girlfriend and I'm going to make things a little bit weird, but it's going to be okay, all right? We're going to have just a quick family chat. We have, with the absolute best of intentions, and I mean that sincerely because I have preached this very thing, as has Brian from this pulpit, we have forced ourselves to not limit the concept of neighbor to people that either live right next to us or sit right next to us or look just like us. We have tried to force ourselves to understand that everyone is our neighbor. We as Christians have responsibilities to everybody, right? And we want to be a church for this city. Has anyone here ever seen the show Community? Not to be confused with the concept, Community. Okay, It's, it's really not that funny, to be honest. Uh, it's, it's kind of this farce on community college life. And there's this episode where they're trying to pick a mascot. And they decide that they're going to be the Greendale human beings. And in order to not, um, you know, restrict any particular gender or race or type of person from representation in their mascot's costume, they try to make this mascot, like, either non-gendered or multi-gendered or non-racial or multi-racial, and basically what ends up happening is it's completely unrecognizable as a person. It looks like an alien because they tried to include everything in it. And I never, ever, ever want this church to lose the idea that people out there that are different from us are our neighbors and deserve us giving our lives over to them. However, I fear that that the overwhelming amount of information that we get every day about the poverty in this world and, and the destruction in this world and the disaster in this world actually causes us to just sit with our head in our hands and we can't make any decisions because there's so much that we should be doing, so much that we could be doing, and we're just overwhelmed. And what I would like to do this morning is remind you, your neighbor has a face, a very definite, unique face. So take a moment right now and look around you. Look at the people sitting next to you. Go ahead. That's your neighbor. The people in this room are your neighbor. And I absolutely want us to continue loving people outside of this room But sometimes we get so caught up with wanting to be everything to everybody that we're nothing to nobody. There are things that we do really, really well here. There is a staggering amount of pregnant women in this church at all times. 
I just now got that. We do that well, okay? Um, <laughs> congratulations, everybody. That's not what I meant. What I meant to say was, I can tell that, that these new families get rallied around pretty regularly. We have, we have sign-up lists, and they get meals, and they, they probably all gain like 30 pounds after they've you know, started their new family because we take care of people. We, we want them to, to feel safe and loved and to have the support they need as they start their new family. And so I'm saying to you, this is amazing. Don't stop doing it, and don't stop there. Because this command is not just about not wanting what your neighbor has. It's about wanting your neighbor to have all good things. Because we've entered the life of Jesus. So it's no longer just providing for other people so that there's a lack of starvation. It's providing life in abundance. The meal that we have been given in the gospel isn't a rice and beans meal. The lamb has been slaughtered and we have been invited to feast. And now, as his life becomes ours, we can in turn give of ourselves to bring a feast to other people, to bring a feast to our neighbors, to our community. But here's the catch. You can't feast with people that you don't know. You can't fulfill needs if you're unaware of the needs around you. And so when we talk about community here, we're not just trying to plug into a really hip buzzword. We're not even really trying to critique American social life, as fragmented as it may be, what we're doing is is we're trying to emphasize the fact that in the gospel, Jesus has come to us. He has come and given us everything. And so now we go out and give things to others. It is because of the gospel that we emphasize community. Jesus sought you out and met your needs. He surpassed all of your desires You were empty, and he came to you, and he filled you, and he filled you, and he filled you. He didn't stay in heaven demanding that we show up and then tell us there's a sign-up sheet in the back in case we have anything that we need. No. He came to us, and it was incredibly inconvenient. It was costly. It was time-consuming and painful and difficult. But if you have been apprehended by him, then you are a part of his body, and at the very least, the very rock-bottom minimum, you have been called to provide for his body, to care for his body, to meet the needs of his body, to build up his body. You are called to supply the needs of the people in this room, to share life with them abundantly. Now, this, this kind of community life takes practice, and it takes discipline, and that's very counterintuitive. It feels like this should be something really natural, something really organic and easy, but that's just not the reality. This kind of life isn't haphazard. It's not accidental. It's not serendipitous or reactionary. It's methodical. It's disciplined. It's time-consuming. It's painful, and it's messy. And as the guy who's in charge of community groups here, I, I am fully willing to admit, you can write this down and throw it in my face later, the structures that we set up are to some degree artificial. They are. To some degree, they're artificial. When football players work out in a gym, they're not lifting weights so they can go out onto the field and push weight machines around on a field. They're lifting weights because they know they're meeting another team. And when reality hits, they have to be stronger than the other guy. They have to develop stamina and discipline in a controlled environment or they will never be able to play in the game. It's been said that the Christian life is a long obedience in the same direction. And it takes discipline. It takes 
stamina. And if you're not engaged in sustained, disciplined community life here, then you're going to be unprepared to meet the needs of people around you because you're not going to be aware of them. Not only that, but we can't help you with your needs if if we don't know you. You will fail to fulfill this command, not just to not covet, but to give of yourself to those around you for the sake of Christ. That's what this command calls us to. This is why we have to think about it in terms of community, not just as individuals. Now we're coming back to Christ. Because covetousness and greed and envy, they all reveal to us something about our relationship with God, how we view him. When we want something that other people have so badly, whether it's their job or their spouse or their vacations or their car, whatever it is, we're basically telling God that he screwed up. He sent the package to the wrong address. It should have come to me. And in doing so, what we're actually doing is is we're disobeying the first command, which is why I included it again this morning. Because what we're telling God is, I do have other gods before you. It's all the good stuff that I want you to give me, and if you don't give it to me, then I'm not happy anymore. We're revealing far more than just discontent with our own lives. We're revealing that we don't actually desire God more than the good things that he can give us. And this is when the greed comes in. Because we try to satisfy ourselves with such cheap substitutes, of course, we're always going to need more and more and more because we've forgotten that Jesus is the, is the true thing that we desire. So when I was in college, I, um, I did a couple of cross-country road trips. I drove from here to South Carolina and, and back. I did that trip twice. And road trips can be really fun. They can also be really tiring. But have you ever been on a road trip and, and you've been driving for hours and you know the city that you're coming up to and you know that there's one of your favorite steakhouses is there, okay? And you're, you're on the road and one of those uh, food ahead signs is on the side of the road. Have you seen these? And, and there's the name, fill in the blank. Your favorite steakhouse is right there. It's on the sign. And immediately your mouth starts to water. I mean, the medium-rare New York Strip, it's perfectly seasoned. It's fantastic. It's got garlic mashed potatoes on the side, probably some Texas toast, grilled asparagus. Anyone? Grilled asparagus? Okay. You can throw that part out if you don't want it. Maybe there's a glass of wine or an ice-cold beer or some iced tea, whatever it is, and your mouth is watering. And so what do you do? You pull off to the side of the road, and you run up to that sign, and you take a big bite out of it. That's what we're doing. That's what we're doing when we expect the things in this life to fulfill our deepest desires. We're eating the road sign that is meant to point us to the reality. It's meant to point us to the destination of Jesus. Whether it's marriage or children, career, a new car or a bigger house, a better meal, a talent for music or painting or building or sculpting, money or the things that money can buy, all of these things are road signs pointing us to Jesus. And these things are good. They're very enjoyable. Please, please understand, this analogy breaks down at some point because Christianity is not a dualist religion. We, we don't think that the spiritual is always going to trump the material. We believe that God created everything and he created it good. And so the fact that we desire things is real. When we desire good food or a spouse or a house, those are true desires for true things, for real things. And the fact that they're real and we actually desire them should tell us that when we actually get Jesus, 
When we experience Jesus and have our desires satiated in him, it's going to blow our mind. It's going to be beyond anything we could possibly imagine. So don't get caught up in collecting road signs. Use them to direct yourself and the people around you to Jesus, the true destination of our hearts. Now, I would love to just end there and and leave us to consider that, but let me just make a couple of practical points, because when I was growing up in the church, I always had these questions. You know, the, the preacher would get up and desire God or, or do better or, or whatever it was, and I always would think, well, how do I do that? Like, I don't even know if I'm doing it, much less how to do it. So let me just address a couple of questions and a couple of practical points, the first of which is, how do you even know if you're desiring God more than the good things that he can give you? This is, this is a very difficult thing to figure out because what I'm not asking us to do is to cut ourselves off from enjoying life. That's not the point. That is not a solution. And yet, how are we supposed to know? When we have all sorts of abundance in our lives, how do we know if we truly desire God more than the things he gives us? Well, St. Augustine has a great test for this that he wrote out. So I'd ask you to consider it. He said that, let's just suppose that God comes to you, sort of like the story in the beginning, but this time it's the Christian God. And he comes and he promises he's not just going to grant you one wish, he's going to give you everything. Physical, spiritual, moral, emotional, intellectual. He will, he will give over to you everything. You will, you will never have a, you know, have a need for food or shelter or warmth or human relationship. You'll no longer struggle with anger or pride or lust or doubt. You will have perfect faith, perfect moral record. You will have absolutely everything in the world, both spiritual and material, that you could ever desire. And the only catch is, that you will not see the face of God ever again. Would you do it? If, if you hesitated even for a second, then you are on the path to desiring God more than the things he can give you. Continue along that path. But the more difficult question to address is, well, how do we, how do we want Jesus more? You can't just tell yourself to want something. I can't stand beats. My wife make beat, makes beets in the house. I leave because the smell is so sinful and terrible. They're, they're Satan's vegetable. I can't just tell myself to want beets, to want them more. That's not how it works. I want what I want, right? In an ultimate sense, when we think about the Christian life and, and, and moving towards Jesus as our true home, this is a work that is done by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who is, who is enrapturing our minds and our hearts and planting in us desires for himself, for Jesus, for the triune God. There's no formula or, or 12-step program here that, that's going to give us great results every time. However, our desires are shaped by our actions, and our actions are shaped by our desires. It's kind of a catch-22 sort of a thing. It's, it's a chicken and egg. It's tough to know where one starts and the other ends. But whether it's clothes, cars, computers, or caviar, it, it makes no difference. You want it, you get it, and, and you get a little bit of satisfaction, but it actually shapes your taste for more. It creates in you a desire to have more of it. And we're back to the, the gym football field analogy. Because it takes sustained, disciplined, liturgical practices to actually foster a desire for God in our hearts. This isn't like 
some 30 days in, in the Bible program and the rest of your life is set. This is, this is your life. This is everything to do with your life, your entire life. And odds are it's going to feel a little bit artificial at first to try and force some of these liturgical practices into your life. But you have to disentangle yourself and allow the Spirit of God to disentangle you from habits that are just as worshipful, whether it's shopping and materialism or intellectual pride, or maybe you're a workaholic and you worship your career, whatever it is, these are all worship. And you have developed patterns and habits in this worship without even realizing it. They become subconscious. You're so good at it. And so now you have to kind of step back and think about those. And then you have to start forming habits that are going to allow you to have more desire for God. And what we have to realize is that God is powerful. He's powerful, and his spirit is the one who disentangles us from all of these idols and allows us to worship the one true God. The spirit forms us and reshapes us and recreates us in Christ, and this is absolutely mystical, but it's not magical. It's mystical, but not magical. It's done as we place ourselves in the community of God's people and develop spiritual rhythms together. If you'll permit me to continue mixing my analogies, developing these habits, these, these worshipful practices to, to bring our desires focused to Christ, we do this in community, and it's, it's, it's like painting road signs for ourselves and for each other. As we do this, we are directly trying to point ourselves to Jesus. We're trying to set up rhythms in our life that allow us to cut through the clutter of all these other things and see him, the true home of our hearts. And we develop these rhythms and habits to remind ourselves of what Jesus has done on our behalf. And that's what we do when we come to this table. We're going to come to this table in a moment, and we're going to engage in a liturgical practice where we are reshaping. We are being reshaped by the Spirit. We come and get nourished by Jesus, but it's more than that. We're getting spiritually fed, and we're getting spiritually recalibrated by the Spirit of God to desire more to want more of Jesus. And in doing so, we are freed in our contentment with him alone because he is the true home of our hearts. Would you pray with me? Jesus, you you have done everything for us. And we are so easily distracted by the good gifts that you have given us. As we come to your table, would you work in our hearts? Would your spirit come to us and reshape us and retune our desires to see that you are our true home? Would we leave this place and realize that the decisions that we make are made in the context of community? They affect other people. And would you give us a heart that longs to see other people's lives filled with the abundance of your life? We pray this in your matchless name. Amen.